Um, we have a staff member here, Dan Smoker, who uh, had a very serious accident uh, six weeks ago now, I believe it is. And Dan is our facility supervisor. He fell uh, at Castle Rock in Colorado and broke his neck, nine ribs in multiple places, shattered his, uh, f- his pelvis, broke his femur, uh, compression fractures in his lower back, lacerated his kidney. And um, Dan has done remarkably well in his recovery. He's just done incredibly well in his recovery. But recently, there's, there's been a little setback. They actually released him from the hospital, and he went home to live at his son's house, who, who lives there. That's why Dan was there on vacation with his family, um, visiting his family. But uh, he had to go back into the hospital, and uh, they're, they're, they're thinking there might be an infection somewhere because he's in more pain than he has been in since the beginning of the whole thing. And so we, we're going to pray for Dan today and just ask God's presence to, to come on him and to bring healing and to banish any infection that's forming anywhere in his body. But I want to ask you to stand with me, would you? And I think we determined that Colorado is this direction a few weeks ago. And so just to extend your hand that direction. And uh, Father God... We, we speak your blessing over Dan right now. We, we pray a release of the kingdom of God over his body, that your presence, Holy Spirit, coming on the basis of what Jesus did for us on the cross and the release of the kingdom of God where there's no sickness, your presence, Holy Spirit, just washing over his body, washing out any, any infection, any glimmer of infection, we say stop right now, stop dead in your tracks and evaporate, be gone in Jesus' name. We pray for a release of the pain, a relief from the pain, and continued strengthening of Dan's body in this recovery period. And Holy Spirit, strengthen Lil and strengthen Dan in their hearts and spirits that they, would not, uh, that they would continue to look ahead with hope and strength and encouragement. We just pray courage for them and hope and peace in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you all. Now, this morning we have a special treat. Sarah Anderson, who is our children's pastor, is speaking, and she's going to bring the second message in our new series on 2 Timothy. In case you don't know Sarah, she's married to Grant. She has three little boys. Uh, well, Connie Grant probably would have to say four, but uh, Sarah is just, uh, she's just, she's killing it back there with the kids. Just a great, we're developing such a powerful ministry there. And in, in recent months, she's been growing and developing a powerful ministry here in preaching too. So let's welcome Sarah up this morning. Come on up, Sarah. Thank you. You know, it's kind of a funny thing to love being with kids and then love being with you guys, and it's just fun to be wherever I am here. It's just a really good time. So we're going to have a good time this morning. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. We're in our Rise Above series going through that book, and who doesn't have something that they need to rise above? right? There's situations that come up in our life all the time, whether it's financial situations, a situation with a family member or someone at work, addiction even. There are all these things in our life that come up that we have to rise above. And so 2 Timothy, this book written by Paul, 
Paul had to overcome and rise above a lot of things in his life. He spread the gospel really to the Western world. And as he did that, he was persecuted, he was stoned, he was put in prison, and ultimately he was executed and martyred for the gospel. So reading Paul, his letter to 2 Timothy, that's going to give us a lot of really good practical things about how to rise above in our lives. You know, I recently heard that Paul is considered one of three of the three most influential men in all of history. The other two men were Muhammad and Jesus. Now, those seem like pretty likely choices, right? They're both the center of a religion that has billions of people around the globe that follow those religions. And Paul maybe seems like an unlikely third addition to it. But if you really know Paul, if you really know his life, and you really know what he did, he took the gospel, he took Jesus' story, and he's the one that spread it outside of Jerusalem, outside of this tiny little Jewish community. He spread it to the world. Paul's really the reason why we have the gospel today. So he was one of the three most influential men in history. You know, he went on several missionary journeys preaching the gospel and establishing churches wherever he went. And as part of that ministry, he would write letters to these churches when he wasn't with them any longer. And that's why we have so many letters from Paul in the New Testament. And these letters, they're full of personal information, especially this letter to Timothy that he wrote. It's full of personal information. He mentions over 25 people that he and Timothy have in common and tells him to take care of this person and, oh, this person can't to see me and watch out for this guy. He's not on our team anymore. And all all these personal connections. But underlying that are these deep theological truths that really have meaning and affect us in our day and age as well. So Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, his spiritual son, as he was in prison waiting to be executed. He wrote the letter to give Timothy some last instructions. He wrote it to encourage Timothy's heart and then also to ask Timothy to come and see him before he dies. So let's read our verses for today. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel." And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for each person that is in this room. I pray that you would open our hearts, (laughs) that we could be filled more with your goodness. I pray that you would open our minds, that we can receive your revelation, that we would have an attitude of being willing to learn. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that you would speak through me and that your presence would just overflow in this place. We love you, God. Amen. So let's start with verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of fear 
or timidity. You and I are included in that us. Paul's writing to Timothy and he's saying, I, Paul, have not been given a spirit of fear. And you, Timothy, you haven't been given a spirit of fear either. But the spirit there is really talking about the Holy Spirit. So all of us who are believers, we're included in that us. It's a collective us. None of us have been given a spirit of fear or timidity. Let's think about where Paul was when he wrote that. He's sitting in prison, waiting to be executed. And he's stating as a fact that he has not been given a spirit of fear. Now, I've never been in prison. I've never been on death row. And certainly not in the first century. So I decided to do some research and see what it would be like. So it's believed that Paul was held in the Mamertine prison, which is in the center of Rome. And it still exists. You can go see it today. And I actually have a picture of the room where Paul was believed to have been held. This is where he wrote 2 Timothy, we believe. It's kind of horrifying, right? They've recently renovated it, and you can actually go. Someone came up first service and told me that she's been there. She's done the tour. You can go take a tour for like 10 euros or something. So she's been there. She said the ceiling is so low. I mean, she's not a very tall person, and she had to like crouch down to be in there. So the next picture is kind of a zoom in of that spot. There's a little plaque that they've put there. Actually, Peter was believed to have been imprisoned in the same exact place. So that plaque says that Peter and Paul were imprisoned there. That stone, there was a column there that they were chained to. So not only are they in this dark little room, but they're chained to one spot. And that hole in the ground... um, It was believed that when this prison was built a long time ago, centuries before that, in ancient times, it was built as a cistern. So there was this artificial uh, well that came up right there. So at least they had access to water. But that's where they were. And then the next picture will kind of show you the overlay of it. So the carcer was the whole prison the main prison, and where you see the letter A, it's a little fuzzy, but that was a hole in the ground going down to this lower chamber where Paul was kept and Peter. So they would put the prisoners through this hole in the ground and then there's no way out. And your only light would come through that hole. If it was a sunshiny day, I imagine. Um, Yeah, and then one more picture. This will show you kind of, so you can imagine how dark it would be. Now, there's no toilet. It's the first century, so they didn't even have refrigerators, but there's no refrigerators, there's no TV, there's nothing to occupy your mind. You're just kind of stuck there. And we believe Paul was given special privileges to even have parchment or scrolls and paper and be allowed to write. That was actually a special privilege he was granted. And this whole... It was where they would put prisoners to await trial or execution. Sometimes they would put people down in there and just let them starve to death, but it generally wasn't used for torture. It was more of like a holding place. And so it's believed that's where Paul was as he wrote 2 Timothy. So I think if I were there, I'd probably be cuddled up in a ball, crying and praying. And my mind would not be on Timothy. And my mind would not be on encouraging him 
and telling Timothy not to be afraid. I would want people to be writing me letters and telling me not to be afraid. But Paul has the presence of mind and such a strong gift of faith that he's reaching out and he's telling Timothy not to be afraid. And Timothy, I think rightfully so, would also be in a position to be afraid at that point in time because he's closely associated with Paul. And Paul's now a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of the state. He's going to be executed. What kind of repercussions does that have for Timothy? So it would be very normal, it would be very natural for both of them to kind of be in a fearful state at this time. But Paul says, we've not been given a spirit of fear. Your situation, your circumstances do not have to dictate your emotions. Our emotions are not the highest truth. God is our highest truth. And so Paul, being in the scariest situation imaginable, is saying that he doesn't have fear. So how do we do that? How do we get to that place? Because sometimes we deal with these like imaginary fears that in comparison with sitting in prison like that, they don't seem like such a big deal. Like, oh, I'm scared I'll get into a car accident one day, or I'm scared I might get sick and get cancer. How do we move past even those fears or even the realer feel, fears of sitting in your own filth in a prison without any light? How do we move past those? Well, Paul tells us in this verse, you have power and love in a sound mind. We don't have a spirit of fear. This word self-discipline, it brings to mind a sound mind, a cool head, being sensible. And if we think about it, fear, the antidote to fear is really each of these three words, power, love, and a sound mind in different ways. So take power. When you're feeling fear, you do not feel powerful. They're opposites. Have you guys ever had that moment where you get some really bad news and for a split second you're just kind of frozen and you can't think and you can't speak and you can't breathe and you can't make a decision and you don't know what you're going to do? And sometimes if it's really awful, that feeling continues for moments or hours or days or weeks or months or sometimes even years where we get stuck and paralyzed and we can't take our next move forward. Fear is debilitating. It's the opposite of power. Paul reminds Timothy that he is powerful. That power is inside of him because we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's powerful And he's inside of us, so therefore we are powerful. We don't have to live in fear. And then we have love. Love and fear are also opposites. Fear is focused inward. It's all about me, 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 me. I'm scared. I don't like this situation. I think I'm going to die. What's going to happen to me? I need to survive. And it's all focused on yourself, and you're all wrapped up in yourself. Love, meanwhile, is focused outward. Love thinks about Timothy. Love thinks about the churches that he's planted. Love thinks about other people above and beyond your present situation. Think about a mother whose child is in a burning building. That mother does not feel fear. You're having to hold the mother back and tell her not to run into the burning building. She's not worried about herself and her body. She's compelled by love to go out and go get her child. Love is focused outward. Fear is focused inward. It says in 1 John 4, 18, that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
Lastly, a sound mind. When you're in a state of fear, you can't think straight. Fear brings confusion. We kind of can lose our sensibility. I have a fear. I usually call it a phobia. And I'm going to share it with you, and you're not allowed to laugh. You can laugh a little. It's not a normal fear, like spiders or heights. I have a phobia of throwing up. And I've had it since I was a really little girl. And when I feel sick, I am not sensible. And I am not rational. I am curled up in the fetal position on my bathroom floor, crying and shaking and breathing into a paper bag and asking Grant to take me to the hospital. Because I'm convinced this is not okay and I'm going to die. And I'm not going to be okay. And I lose all sense of being rational. I'm normally a pretty sane, rational person. Except when I'm sick. I'm a real treat to be around when I'm sick. And it's not even when I feel sick. It's when anybody around me tells me that they feel sick. So a couple months ago, we were out to dinner, and my oldest son, who's nine, said that he had a stomach ache and we had to go home. And panic hit real deep. And so we're driving home, and I'm driving, and we're on the highway, and I'm shaking and starting to hyperventilate. And I was not in a place of power. I was not praying for him to be well. I mean, I was praying for that, but not from a place of love. And I was was not in a place of love because I was all focused on myself. And I was having Grant rub my back and tell me I was okay. (laughs) Meanwhile, my kid's in the back seat, like, feeling really awful. Really not my best parenting moment. And I was not in a sound mind. I mean, my kid puking in the back seat is not going to kill me. I know that. I know that now. I can say that now. But in the moment when I was gripped with fear, it, it was the worst thing ever. And we got home and I ran upstairs and had my little panic attack and poor Grant had to deal with everything. And Grant's a saint. I mean, he's so good to me. <laughs> but fear eliminates our ability to have a sound mind. Because I know, and I've really worked I'm trying to work through this. Grant would maybe say that I've not really worked through it as much as I should have. But I really, I've made some strides. But when we're in in this place of fear, we don't have a sound mind. And things that we normally would say that we know are true, fear takes from us. Because in my right state of mind, I mean, if my kid has a sore throat, I'm right there. Giving him popsicles, loving on him, praying on him. But when fear comes, we lose our sound mind and we lose things that we know to be true. So this is what Paul was doing. He was reaching out, thinking outwardly of Timothy, keeping his sound mind, keeping what he knew to be true in the front of his mind and reminding Timothy, hey, Timothy, you're powerful. Hey, Timothy, you're full of love. We move on to verse eight. So do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. This verse starts with so. It's pointing us back to verse 7. So, therefore, Timothy, you have these things in your back pocket. You have power. You have love. You have a sound mind. So, therefore, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of me who's in chains for the gospel. Do not be ashamed of Jesus who died in the most brutal way possible. Do not be ashamed. You have these three things. Keep them in the front of your mind. 
See, it would have been natural for Timothy, as soon as Paul was arrested, to distance himself. Say, oh, who's Paul? I I don't know who that guy is. I'm going to be over here. Just like Peter did. When Jesus was arrested, Peter says, see ya, I'm out. This went one step too far. And he denies knowing Jesus three times. Timothy could have done that with Paul. He could have been done. And Paul reminds him, hey, you've got power, love, and a sound mind. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of this gospel. And interestingly enough, Paul doesn't say that he's, in, that he's a political prisoner or that he's a prisoner of Rome. He says that he is his prisoner, God's prisoner. Paul is not ashamed to be in jail because he's in jail because of the gospel. He's okay with suffering in that awful, disgusting place because it's for the gospel. He knows that it's advancing the kingdom of God. So he tells Timothy, you don't have to be ashamed of it either. No matter what the political ramifications are going to be for you, you don't ever have to be ashamed of it. He tells Timothy not to be ashamed, even knowing the possible consequences that are going to come. See, God has called Paul and Timothy and all of us to a holy life, a holy calling, it says in one translation. What does a holy life mean or a holy calling? It doesn't mean a perfect life. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be in jail. It doesn't mean an elitist life of looking down on everybody else. I'm so holy and wonderful and you're not. It doesn't mean a life that just tries to do good things or tries to avoid sinning. It means a life that is an active pursuit of God. A life that is dedicated to advancing the kingdom of God and above all, a life that is whole and beautiful and holy just as God our Father is whole and beautiful and holy. We've been called to this holy life and when we live that holy life, it's bright and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, and it's encouraging. And to those of us that are in the family of God, when we see someone living out their holy life, living out their holy calling, it's wonderful, and it's bright, and it lights us up, and we want to be like them and emulate them more, and we feed off of each other and make each other's lights brighter. And even to people that are being wooed into God's family, that God's really working on their hearts, our bright lives are like a beacon to them. And they want to come closer to us and say, what is it about them that makes them so joyful, so hopeful, so loving? I want that. But to those outside the kingdom of God, to those outside of our family, we're too bright. We're blinding. It's obnoxious. It's too loud. It gets in their face. And the darkness pushes back. And so our holy lives, they just kind of rub against the fabric of society And I think that's where the suffering and the persecution come in. Because it's an assault to the darkness for us to live out our holy life, to live out our holy calling. And Jesus tells us this in John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Have you ever suffered for the gospel? 
Have you ever lost a relationship or a friendship? Been made fun of? What has it cost you to follow the gospel? Because you know it's free. This grace has been freely given to us, but it's costly. When I was in high school, I was in a great youth group. And I had this amazing group of friends that surrounded me. And there was this awesome positive peer pressure thing where we would spur each other on and encourage each other to run after Jesus. And it was good and it was amazing and it was wonderful. And side note, I met those friends in Sunday school. We all went to different high schools. And then we became really good friends at summer camp. And then those friendships became solidified through youth group and mission trips and retreats and Sunday night hangouts and things like that. Guys, send your kids to camp. (laughs) That's my plug for you today. But it's where your friendships really become solidified. It's where your kids are going to meet those friends that are going to push them to follow Jesus as they go throughout high school. High school's not easy. They need good Jesus friends next to them. And what better place than in a hot, sweaty, smelly cabin to solidify friendships? (laughs) So registration's open, see me afterward. Um, But there were people, I had a great high school experience, but there were people that made fun of me. And it wasn't intense and it wasn't awful, but occasionally I'd be called a Jesus freak or a Bible thumper or I wouldn't be invited someplace or people wouldn't tell me something. And it wasn't a whole lot, But it was enough that these verses from John 15 about the world hating you were in my journal when I was in high school. It was enough that I was sent to the Bible and wanted to find what was going on, why this was happening to me. A year or two ago, we were driving home from Thanksgiving and we were coming from Cleveland and we pulled off at a rest stop and we went to McDonald's and I ran into a guy I knew in high school. And he got really flustered when he introduced me to his wife and to Grant. And he said, this is the the girl, this is the reason why I'm a follower of Jesus. She's the reason why I'm a youth pastor. And I had no idea. I mean, we had had some like conversations maybe in middle school, but there wasn't a big dramatic conversion moment. I had no idea until years later. I have another story like that of a girl, she was the lead in our high school musical, and I was in the dance ensemble, and opening night, her stomach really hurt. And you know my secret now, so you know that there was something propelling me to pray for her, because normally (laughs) I'd be over here, but something told me to pray for her. And so I went up, and I prayed for her, and just prayed for her to feel better, and she did, and she went on, and it was great. And I really didn't think anything about it. And years later, she told me that was the moment that God became real to her. And I had no idea. (laughs) When we live this holy life, when we live out our holy calling, it changes the people around us, sometimes without us knowing. But before you really think too highly of me, um, after high school, I went to college. And... um, I went to a Catholic university, Jesuit university, and we had a theology requirement. So second semester, freshman year, I signed up for the Gospel of Matthew. I thought, this is going to be great. I'm really going to learn some good truths. It's going to be amazing. And it became very, very evident within the first couple minutes of the first class that the professor was an atheist. 
And his whole point in teaching the class was to disprove the Gospel of Matthew and point out all of the inaccuracies and things that were wrong. So I was still, you know, trying to live this unashamed life and to be bold. And so I raised my hand and we went back and forth a little bit the first class. And I went back the second class and I did the reading. And by about the third class, I was done. And, you know, in verse 7 where it says timidity, Van was sharing with me that that word actually brings to mind the picture of somebody turning and running away from a battle. And that's what I did. I turned and I ran away from that battle. I dropped the class. And soon after, gradually, I dropped my faith. And I dropped my holy calling. I dropped my holy life. And for the next three years, I lived an unholy life and an unholy calling. And I'm not proud of it. I don't like to talk about it, but it happened. And I have zero stories of someone finding me years later and saying, hey, it's because of you that I know Jesus. None. (laughs) Nobody stopping me at McDonald's off of I-71. It's not happening. When we live an unholy life, when we don't press into our holy calling, we do not advance the kingdom of God. We just don't. We're called to live a holy life. We're called to be different. We're called to to bring people in. You guys, God is so good. I've obviously regained my faith. (laughs) I'm obviously back in the family of God. But it took some time. My senior year, I finally got up the courage to take my theology credit that I had to to graduate. And so I chose Old Testament prophets because I thought it would be boring and historical. And it really was boring and historical (laughs) at that time. But the professor was this little old Presbyterian lady. And totally unbeknownst to her, in a very calculated fashion, she went through and she broke down every argument that that first professor had made. She had no idea. And so that was a step towards my faith being restored. It took years. It took coming to this church, actually, for my faith to be fully restored. But our God is a God of redemption. This past year, through Vineyard Institute, I took a course called the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. (laughs) From a kingdom perspective. And man, did that first professor miss the mark. He totally missed it. Totally missed it. Our God is a God of redemption. Is there an area of your life where you're living ashamed? Is there an area of your life that you're turning away from your holy calling due to societal pressure or peer pressure? So do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Guys, we have nothing to do with it. We didn't deserve this. It was all God. He overflows with grace and mercy and love, and he gives it to us freely. We see this over and over. The Bible can say it better than I can. Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's not about what we do. It's not about how good we are. It's not about if we don't do bad things. It's all about if we believe, if we have the faith. That's how we are justified. Last one, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This grace is freely given. The salvation is by grace alone. We had nothing to do with it. We don't deserve it. It's so amazing. It's so astounding. And it's such a gift. And we're just called to not be ashamed of it. We're asked to walk an unashamed life. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This grace that we've been given freely, it has an eternal quality about it. It says that it was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So it's an eternal grace. This is true because Jesus is also eternal. We read in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, before eternity, before the beginning of time, Jesus was there, and this grace was given to us through him, this eternal grace. And then in this time, today, when we reach out and take hold of the grace, it becomes a part of us, and that eternal nature of the grace is inside of us, and so we then also become eternal and immortal. That's kind of deep, so I'm going to say it again. So this grace is eternal. It's always existed. It's always going to exist. But when we, by faith, by believing in Jesus' sacrifice, because Jesus abolished death and brought immortality to light, when we reach out and accept that grace, the grace comes inside of us. We become new creations that are eternal beings that have immortality inside of us. That grace becomes a part of us, and we then become eternal. How good is that? (laughs) John 5, 24. This is Jesus speaking. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, there's your grace, but has crossed over from death to life. We become eternal, immortal beings. This is the gospel. Gospel means good news. This is the good news. Isn't it good news that death has been destroyed? That light has come through the appearing of our Savior? 
And actually the word appearing in that verse there, it speaks to Jesus's eternal quality. Jesus wasn't just born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He existed way, way, way before that. That was just when he appeared on our earth. He has an eternal quality to him. Paul knows this eternal quality. He knows that in the landscape of eternal, eternity, he's got this eternal grace inside of him. So this time in prison for him in the landscape of eternity is really very, very short. When you think about things in the mindset of eternity, these sufferings and persecutions that we endure are really very, very short. Verse 11, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. The word appointed there makes me think of political appointees. How are political appointees appointed? Well, usually one of two ways. Usually either they're appointed through relationship They know the person in power and they've probably helped them get elected or they've done something for them. So it's kind of like a you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours kind of situation. Or the person is qualified for the job and has all the qualifications and giftings necessary to carry out the the appointment. Ideally, it's both of those things. And we know the person and we know that they're qualified and those work hand in hand. Well, that's the same way that we're appointed. For Paul, God appointed him to serve in three different capacities. For you and for me, it works the same way. We're appointed through relationship. We're in relationship with the triune God. We know him and he knows us. It's like an elf when he's like, Santa, I know him. (laughs) We know him. We have relationship with him. So he can appoint us to do what we need to do because we know him. But then also we're qualified. Jesus qualified us. He paid for all of our sins. He paid for all of our wrongdoings. He made us new creations that are eternal, that are uniquely qualified to carry out the kingdom work. Jesus qualifies us. And then over and above that, the Holy Spirit qualifies us too. It's like this double duty thing. The Holy Spirit's inside of us. And he's got power and love and a sound mind and all these amazing things, and he's inside of us. So we're double qualified and we're in relationship. So therefore, we're all able to be appointed. How has God appointed you? What gifts has he put inside of you? Because you're in relationship and you're qualified and you're gifted. He's put gifts inside of you. It's going to look different for each of us, Paul and Timothy were called to preach and teach. They had similar callings, and so it was a good mentor relationship for them. But for each of us, it's going to look different. What's he put inside of you? What's special about you? How is the gospel being portrayed through your life and your giftings? We're called to walk out this holy life, this beautiful life with an eternal quality that isn't fearful, that isn't afraid to shine and be bright. A holy life that doesn't let life's circumstances, whether it's sickness or challenges or a dark, disgusting prison, change our heart posture of love and gratitude for the amazingness of the gospel, of Jesus' sacrifice. We are called to walk in power and love and a sound mind. We have a sound mind that can rest assured that Jesus has broken the power of death. He has abolished death and therefore suffering persecution and fear have no hold on us. 
We can walk out our holy calling without fear. Let's pray. (laughs) Jesus, you're good. (laughs) You are just good. We thank you that you have abolished death, that you've brought immortality to light. We thank you that you have called us, that you have called us your own. We thank you that we know you, that you are good, that you want to know us. We pray that that would take root deep down in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to move into the worship portion of our service. So if you are on the far left side of a row, there's a basket under your chair. If you can pass that down so we can receive the offering, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much for giving so freely and so generously to this church. Yeah, it's through your gifts that we're able to to have all of these ministries that we have that are so powerful. So thank you, Jesus, for these gifts. Thank you for how you're going to bless this church with financial provision. I pray for every person in this church that they would be blessed financially. In your name, amen. Jesus, really. It's because of him that we have this power and this love and this sound mind and that we don't have to live in fear. And I think some of us in this room, we've been living trapped by fear. We've been in a dark prison without any light. And we've been stuck in that place, maybe just for this morning, maybe for the past couple weeks or months or even years, and you've been stuck and paralyzed and you haven't been able to take a step forward into your next phase of life. There's freedom for that today. There's freedom because of Jesus, because of what he did. He came to set us free for the sake of freedom. He doesn't want you in prison. He doesn't want you in chains. He wants you free, living your eternal, holy life that is whole and beautiful and bright and shining to everyone around you. I got a picture before church this morning of chains being carried away by birds and that the chains were light enough and weightless enough that birds were just gathering up chains and just flying away with them. So in Jesus' name, I declare that the chains of fear in this room are broken off. They are weightless in Jesus' name. They are such a light burden that a tiny bird can take it away. We declare that in Jesus' name, that this body, these people are free. They will not live in fear. They will live in power. They will live in love. And they will have sound minds to remind them that they are eternal, immortal, holy beings. In Jesus' name, we thank you, God, for your freedom. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you love us. And that we can know you. 
If you've been set free today, come up and let our prayer teams pray for you. If you still need more freedom, come up. Let our prayer teams pray for you. For any physical, spiritual, or emotional needs, we would love to spend time and pray with you and bless you and help you get some more freedom. Don't forget our newcomer's luncheon happening at 1.15 downstairs. We'd love to have you. Go in peace, guys. Amen.